Hello and welcome to Health to Wealth, a series by Accor. I'm Annie Hood. This is the podcast that shows you how well-being touches every part of your life. People everywhere have the same needs. They just have different opportunities. If they can fix those opportunities, equalize it on healthcare, then I think we will have a better world because we have made it more possible for more people to flourish. At the age of just 15, Ali Parsa left his native Iran and settled in England. He taught himself English, took his O-levels, and then followed up with a bachelor's degree and a PhD in engineering physics. He also became an entrepreneur, creating media company V and G. After a spell in investment banking, Ali set his sights on the healthcare sector, first setting up hospital operator Circle Health, then in 2013, founding Babylon. Babylon is a revolutionary AI and digital health company that would bring easy access to a doctor to anyone with a mobile phone. When Babylon joined the Nasdaq in 2021, Ali became one of Britain's wealthiest entrepreneurs on paper, but he says he is motivated by the desire to make a difference to people's health outcomes rather than by money. Currently, discussions on the future of healthcare are voracious. Ali believes we all need to show more understanding and kindness in our public interactions. Ali, what's the link between your experience as a physicist and your current aim to put accessible and affordable healthcare in the hands of everyone all over the world? I guess the short answer is nothing. I loved engineering, I loved physics, and I wasn't very good at it, to be very honest, right? Uh, so when you are in academia, you'll see all these very bright people who are doing fantastic jobs. What I was good at was I had to figure out a way of paying for my PhD. And I built a business and I was good at doing that. And I loved the creativity of creating something new. And if there is a connection between physics and creativity is creation. Physics, it's all about how do things fit together. And the one lesson that I learned from physics that helped me always in life is that that problem, it doesn't matter how complex it is. If you can deconstruct it to its elemental units, it's a lot easier to resolve. And I think that has been the legacy of physics in my head, that uh, I've always kind of intuitively tried to apply that principle to everything I try to do. What are the guts of how Babylon intends to escalate even further than you are already in putting that accessible healthcare into the hands of more people. And if I go back to what I just said about uh, deconstructing a problem to its elemental units, uh, and if you look at what our mission is, make quality healthcare accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of every person on earth. And if you look at that problem, we haven't even began to solve it, right? There is so much more to go. If you deconstruct it and say, well, how do you make healthcare accessible? And the answer for us is as long as we can deliver most of the healthcare most people need on the devices most already have, that will become highly accessible. Google has made information highly accessible to everybody. It doesn't make all information available. I can't see what is on your laptop, but I can see most of the things I need. I can readily find it. There really is no reason why we can't deliver most of the advice, most of the diagnosis, most of the help most people need to them wherever they are in the world. And actually, it doesn't cost as much. You can 
actually deliver primary care to everyone in the world for a fraction of the cost of U.S. healthcare alone, let alone uh, global healthcare. Second is the issue of affordability. And if you again dissect that, there are two fundamental contributors to cost in healthcare. One is salaries. Doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals are among the rarest and therefore among the most expensive asset of any country. And the reality is there is no way to significantly reduce costs unless we can figure out how we can automate much of what humans do so that humans can do the bits that machines cannot do. Otherwise, there is no other way to reduce the cost. And the second is about two-thirds of all costs in healthcare are on predictable, preventable diseases. So if we can foresee to predict to prevent, then we can significantly reduce costs. A root canal. Nobody needs a root canal. It only happens because nobody's checking your teeth. If you check your teeth, you can avoid it. So the industry we have, it's all about sicker. It waits until you have your root canal and then it expends huge amount of money. You suffer a huge amount of pain to fix it. We should really take that sicker industry and turn it into a healthcare industry. So if you look at it in the context of that, I don't think we haven't even begun yet. It takes time to build the infrastructure, to bring the people in, uh, to set the plans, to make mistakes, to redo, to refix. But we are on our way. We are gently, slowly moving on. I want to take a moment here to elaborate on what's being discussed. For Ali, globally affordable healthcare isn't going to be achieved unless you can cut down on cost. And to his mind, automating some of that work is the only way to do that. Automation in the jobs market is a subject you can hear much more about in another episode of Health to Wealth that features Manuel Muniz. Manuel is an international scholar. His work looks at the rapid advance of technology and the positive and negative effects that can have. Let's hear Manuel's thoughts on the impact that automation will have on the jobs market in the future. Fundamentally, the underlying idea here is, well, we know lots of jobs, even white collar jobs that we think are fairly sophisticated, tax advisory, accounting, you know, some legal work translation services, travel agencies, things like that, that have this repetitive component to them. We know that many of these are going to be automated through AI and machine learning systems and others, and advanced robotics in some instances. But we also know that one of the toughest things to automate is uh, human interaction. There, there's still, you know, a lot of value add to individuals being engaged in those activities. That's what people want. That's what these processes need. So the empathy economy is, an, is a way of capturing this cluster of jobs that basically put the individual at the center. A lot of the authors that have been writing about this include in the empathy economy everything that has to do with care, elderly care, uh, dependency care. You know, these, these are people that have technical skills, but above all, they have high degrees of empathy. Part of their success lies in them managing other people's expectations, feelings, uh, and emotions effectively. And that's going to be very, very hard to automate and to delegate to an AI or to a computer. I think it's going to take a long time for AI to be sufficiently sophisticated and capable to substitute hum- humans in, that, in those functions. So as Manuel has identified, the empathy economy demands human interaction. Clearly, that's hugely important to well-being. But what about healthcare? Where does the empathy economy sit within telemedicine? As you'll hear for Ali Parsa, the two things go hand in hand. It is 
absolutely true that a machine cannot put its hand on your shoulder and say, trust me, I look after you, right? But it is also equally absolutely true that for the vast majority of the people in the world, that hand does not exist. Five out of seven, eight billion people in the world have no access to secondary care. None, right? According to World Health Organization, 50% of the world population has no access to primary care or any kind of almost health care. If you live in a second, third tier city in India, uh, for instance, uh, your average consultation with a doctor, even if you find access to a doctor, is about one and a half minutes, right? So when we sit and say everybody needs a very long time with a human doctor who understands them, who has empathy, who's updated with the most uh, cutting edge knowledge to talk to them, that is absolutely true if you have access to it. But the reality for the vast majority of the people in the world is they have no access to that. The reality for you and I is that we don't have access to it. I mean, good luck finding a great doctor and be able to see them immediately. Average waiting time, even for primary care now, is two weeks in our cities. Uh, So which one is more dangerous, right? Having no access or having a machine that can do that? Now, I'm not saying we have a machine that can do that. I'm not saying we're going to have a machine that can do that anytime soon. But we have to accept the fact that there is no scenario in the world right now that we can educate enough doctors, keep them up to date at the cutting edge of healthcare, have enough nurses that can deal with all the problems we have. And we're only, by the way, Annie, talking about physical health. I mean, when it comes to mental health, they have nothing even near the numbers we need, not even a fraction of those numbers. And how is Babylon responding to that? Because as you have rightly touched on, there's more and more statistics coming out relative to the effects of lockdown on mental health or the effects of the pandemic on mental health. What impact has that pandemic had on your patient's acceptance for telemedicine and using your platform? I think acceptance of using telemedicine was just a cultural issue. And uh, what the pandemic did was just made it a necessity to see a doctor. And you saw a doctor exactly in the same way that you and I are seeing each other now remotely. It has the same, same answer. It's fascinating to me. So I think that sometimes when we get used to doing things the way we used to do them, change is difficult. And we come up with all sorts of reasons why that change shouldn't happen. But if you sit back and think about it, it it really made no sense. Imagine your child is ill, they have temperature, they feel miserable, they're in bed, they're sweating, they're shivering. And we tell them, now we're going to go see a doctor. And I need to put you in a bus, take you all the way to the somewhere. Uh, You need to sit in what is usually one of the most infected places on earth for a few uh, minutes or an hour or two to, to be able to see a doctor for a few minutes to get a medication that that doctor could have given you over the phone. It just didn't make any sense. And I think that we've grown out of it now. And I think this better way of seeing people is here to stay. But that doesn't mean there is no room for physical. I mean, we are still one in 10, two in 10 of our patients that still need to be seen physically. And there is a room for everything. I think that putting these things against each other 
It's not the right approach. I think these are different tools in the arsenal we all need to make healthcare accessible and affordable to everyone. Thank you for listening to Health to Wealth from Accor. This podcast is supported by Technogym, a brand that's all about helping you improve your lifestyle and your performance. 30 years ago, Technogym defined wellness as a lifestyle, including regular exercise, healthy nutrition, and a positive mental approach. They develop products and technologies to make exercise more inclusive and effective for everyone. They're at the cutting edge of high performance technology and on a mission to improve your health and the health of the planet through the spirit of Technogym. You brought up mental health. How can telemedicine help in the field of supporting the vast need within populations for mental ill health support? I think love is required in mental health support is accessibility. So many of people who suffer from mental health challenges, and they suffer on their own in loneliness, and eventually something happens until they got into a crisis. We had a person who talked publicly about this, so I can quote her. She used to have so many challenges that eventually she would self-harm, end up in emergency room, just so that she can see somebody. It's a cry for help for somebody. And once in a while, she will be hospitalized, right? And since she joined a service like ours, because she can see somebody all the time, she just hasn't been in hospital for 18 months, right? And I just think that what telemedicine, as you call it, does, virtual health, as I call it, uh, does, digital health does, it just makes it more accessible, easier for people to connect to other human beings, right? to serve their need. And whether that need is, is, is physical or mental or clinical in any way, it's an important need that needs to be served, right? What you mentioned earlier was about really conditioning and an ideology for all of us, I think, would be to be able to see a doctor immediately. If we don't feel well, we want to be able to have that access absolutely immediately. And I'm thinking about that through the lens of of human touch and being just a hand on the arm, being with someone physically. Um, and that, that plays a very important role in well-being. So how does, how does Babylon compensate for this desire that will never go away, for that, that human-to-human touch and presence? It's a fantastically important question. And it had two parts on it. One is about the importance of our ideologies, as you call it, beliefs, as I, uh, as we call it. Uh, and on one hand, and on the other, about the role of humans versus machines or or AI. Uh, let me take the second one. There is absolutely no question in my mind that for the foreseeable future, the idea that the machine can do what a human can do in healthcare, it's fanciful. All a machine can do is a tool to help a human do better. Uh, Think about it in terms of driving, right? Uh, For about 20, 30 years now, we've been given the promise of self-driving cars. 
Uh, that promise has not materialized. But think about how much AI assists you and I in our driving now. I mean, the, the, the map on our machine, the navigation system in our machine, it used to be a huge argument between me and my wife on who reads the map and who uh, does what. It took two human beings to get in the wrong way. And now there's just a navigator, pure AI, helping me drive, right? And eventually self-navigating cars and self-driving cars will come too. We all know it will. We just wait for it until, until it happens. The same is with the use of AI. We, we should not think about it as a replacement for human touch. We should take in it for now as an aid to human touch, uh, if that makes sense. And on ideology, we have a very strong belief in Babylon. And it is not that you should be able to see a doctor at any time. That is fine if you get sick. It is actually that it is absurd to wait for you to get sick until you have to see a doctor. We should collect so much data from you to be able to have continuous insight from you, to monitor you so you never have emergencies and crises. To me, if I, we can create a company that one day you can join Babylon and say that my deal with you is that you, I will never have surprises. And we can tell you that we will monitor you so well that we can always see a problem before it comes, that's the day we will win. We're a long way away from that because it takes a huge amount of effort to be able to collect all of that data, continuously monitor it, analyze it, have insights over it, predict to prevent. But that's the part I hope we can go. And you're talking so um, eloquently there about the value of data. And the more you have, uh, the more personalized responses can be. Um, and the more able you and others are to actually switch that culture from reactive to preventive. What do you see, Ali, in terms of timescale of us as a world as regions being able to move that needle that I mentioned earlier, not just with Babylon, but as a collective, you know, from governments to private sector, getting us closer to a more preventive view of our health, keeping ourselves well rather than waiting until we get sick. What's that timescale? And I actually don't think, considering the resources the world has, this is, this is among the harder problems that we have to face. I actually think this is super easy. I think that the uh, the incentives are in the wrong place, right? Nobody's incentivized to do what you just described. Everybody's incentivized to spend money on fixing you when you're ill. It all goes into that sick care industry. Even a tiny fraction of that money can create systems of monitoring. How hard is it to do what we did with testing with COVID for all sorts of other things? How hard is it to test everybody every year for all sorts of diseases to try to collect a lot of data? How hard is it to give everybody devices that can monitor their health, their heart rate, their uh, COPD, their diabetes, their, uh, you, you name it, right? This, these are not hard things to do. And how hard is it to collect all of that data, to analyze it all the time and be able to make sense of it? I mean, think of the sheer amount of data analysis that goes into self-driving cars, right? And all the data that companies are collecting from every street, every interaction with every car, any child, any person that can walk, every traffic light, and we analyze that and we try to predict. Like, this is not a hard problem. This is a problem that we're not focused on. 
It's a problem there is no incentives for. There's a problem that nobody's getting paid to do. And that is the challenge. The challenge is one of organization and intent. It's not one of technology and capability. I think that this is, has to start from the top. It's a fundamental re-engineering of the way we get paid. It's so interesting to hear Ali discuss the challenges that exist around collecting and using data in order to move towards a more preventive model of healthcare. It reminds me of the work that Julian Ranger has been doing in this area. Julian is the founder of DigiMe, a free app that allows you to take control of your data and use it in many different ways. You can hear more about how that works in Julian's episode for the Health to Wealth series. It's called Data's New Age of Consent and it's out now. Let's hear Julian's thoughts on how managing your data in the right way could lead to more personalised healthcare. Diabetes is a modern scourge and we want to be able to manage that and we're getting better at understanding that that management is different depending on different people. So if I want an application on my phone, for example, to tailor that evidence just for Julian, that phone may need to know what medications I'm on, may need to have other information. Now, if I can share that data, so the can is the really important part, and I can do so knowing that I've consented only for that app to use my data and for various other things, then what's the value to me? Well, it's kept me alive or kept me healthy. I spent 20 years doing networking data and interoperability on massive systems between aircraft and ships and other things. And you learned that it's remarkably complex to derive data, to share data, to network it, to make it all work, even when you have single contracting authorities or everything else. Take that into the real world of commerce and individuals and stuff. It's a nightmare. It is fundamentally, nearly every system that we've got today has reached the limits of its ability. Health, no matter how many billions we spend on health, and in the UK we spent eight billion on the national program for IT, we never got a unified health record. We just can't do it, it's too complex. And so you realize there is actually a very simple solution the other side, and that is, the individual, if you put them at the center of their data, everything else then works. And so it's the right thing to do ethically, but it's the right thing to do technically to make it all work. And it's those two things that really drive what we're doing. It's exciting to think that innovation like this could help you and me access more affordable, personalized healthcare in the future through being able to manage our own data safely and securely. And as you've heard in other episodes of Health to Wealth, for example, with elite performance coach Harry Jameson and clinical physiologist Ollie Patrick, health and well-being really do sit side by side when it comes to preventing ill health. And as you'll hear, Ali Parser agrees with that viewpoint wholeheartedly. I just don't see what the separation of the two is. Right. So one of the biggest, if you want, uh, kind of misunderstandings is the misnaming of that sick care sector, right? We call it that. If you think about it as healthcare, if you think that the job of a healthcare service is to keep you at the peak of your health uh, and help you not to have surprises, emergencies, crises, then there really isn't a difference between well-being and healthcare. Ali, I'm fascinated to hear more of your of your thoughts on this because if anyone is in the driving seat to be able to move the needle on this 
subject and this narrative. It is you, sir. How does Babylon 2.0, 3.0, how is it positioned to be able to move that needle and that narrative away from reactive to preventive? So we are, in the context of global healthcare, we are a tiny little company. So we can never move the needle on anything at a scale that matters anytime soon. What we can do is show how it can be done. What we can do is provide the examplers for the rest of the world to put out their doubt. You can join Babylon GPF hand and you will have a doctor within minutes, 24 seven, uh, if pressure is high within hours, right? Uh, but it certainly is not two weeks later, right? Uh, and, uh, and so that problem is solved. And now more and more, almost everybody have access virtually to their doctors if they wish to. And if they wish to see them physically, they must be able to see them physically, by the way. On that debate that we should not force everybody to see people virtually, it makes no sense. My mother doesn't want to be, be seen virtually. She wants to be seen physically. She should be seen physically. So what we can, organizations like us, can do, and we should never be arrogant enough to think that we can solve the problems of the world. All we can do is provide little examples for the world to see whether it's worth following and doing themselves. Ali, I'm interested in your in your personal background and what has led you to this desire to provide accessible healthcare globally. What's got you here? What's brought you to where you are now and indeed since 2013 when you founded Babylon? Look, we all get to where we are in life as a result of set of circumstances and luck. I got super lucky in life when I was a young uh, middle-class kid a revolution happened in my country. The whole society of people happened. Uh, universities got closed and, uh, and, and everything. And I had to become, I had to leave as a refugee. Right? And I became a refugee. So I went from being a pretty middle-class kid in a comfortable surrounding to being super poor as a refugee. Went from the thing of a family to being alone. From being an, a native to being an immigrant. And today I went from being uh, young to being older and then I was rich enough and then I became poor enough and then now I'm rich enough. It really doesn't matter what I saw. It doesn't matter who you are. Young, rich, poor, old, uh, immigrant, native. People everywhere, Annie, have the same needs, the same desires. They just have different opportunities. That's all it is. They just have different opportunities. And if we can fix those opportunities, equalize it on healthcare, if we can equalize it much more importantly on education, if we can equalize it on their ability to express themselves, then I think we will have a better world because we have made it more possible for more people to flourish. And that indeed, I believe, is your legacy to create a better world, and you were so ahead of the curve, still are. Why did you decide back then that healthcare needed to be disrupted? It really, again, is a set of circumstances, right? It's amazing to me the number of people I hear that they said, since the age of seven, eight, nine, that's what I wanted to do. The reality is you fall into these things through circumstances. Um, I had a series of knee surgeries because of sports. And so how bad 
the supposedly one of the best private hospitals at the time was in dealing with me. And I thought, well, surely I can make hospitals better than that. So I built a chain of hospitals, Circle, which today is UK's largest chain of hospitals. But as I was doing the hospital, it kind of became really clear to me that we're trying to solve the wrong problem. You and I will hopefully only go to a hospital once every 20 years. And uh, if you're unlucky, quite a lot in the last two years of our life. But most of our life, we need a very different kind of healthcare, the primary care, the uh, remote care. And, and that just wasn't there. And we thought that, how do we do that? How do we take most of the healthcare most people need and deliver it to them on devices most of them already have to make it accessible and affordable to everybody? And when as an entrepreneur, an idea gets into your head, it is super hard to push it up. So I tried to persuade at the time the board of Circle that we should do that. And they wouldn't hear it. And so I left to build my next passion. And I'm, uh, I, I couldn't be happier. And uh, in your introduction, you talked about its value. It's almost irrelevant, right? Uh, I'm a huge believer that you should do what is right. And values go up, values go down. In the short term, values are always a voting machine. When there is a fad behind something, everybody follows it. When there is no fad, everybody don't. But in the long term, Evaluation is always a weighing machine. You keep putting the weight onto the value of what you're doing, and the valuation will eventually fix itself. What Ali's just said here about business growth really chimes with one of the messages from another guest in the Health to Wealth series, Ali Burns. Ali Burns is the CEO of Village Capital. That's a venture capital firm that focuses on supporting diverse entrepreneurs who are solving real-world problems. For Ali Burns, there's too much attention paid to unicorn valuations. That's valuations or startups that are pegged at over $1 billion. Let's hear her take on the best attitude towards growth when it comes to businesses that have a social mission. The thing we do need is education because so much media and attention and excitement comes into venture capital models and unicorn valuations. There's a lot of press around those companies. It's not as sexy when a company's growing at a steady clip and solving a real problem, but isn't maybe necessarily valued at, you know, X billion dollars. And so those companies don't get a lot of attention, which means that entrepreneurs, when they're first starting out, sort of start with the bias of, oh, I need to raise a whole bunch of money from venture capital when really their business model is more suited to a different type of investment. So that's one of the things we're really excited about focusing on is how do we help expose entrepreneurs to different models and different perspectives on what growth means as well. It's always good to get that bit of perspective on realistic long-term business growth. And when it comes to the future of healthcare, as you'll hear for Ali Parsa, there is a lot to look forward to. I think there is so much in happening in healthcare that makes me super excited. Just think about you and I were talking about artificial intelligence. Just think about what is happening in the infrastructure of that, that can change it fundamentally. I mean, we are starting to have quantum computing coming of age that is a hundred million fold, hundred million fold stronger than uh, the strongest supercomputer we have. The day these computers become stable and can be used, just think about what that kind of processing power can do to artificial intelligence. We are having connectivity in 5G and then who knows what 6G would do. They are hundredfold stronger than the 4G. 
We are having edge computing that is bringing all that connectivity into our neighborhoods. We are having, as you mentioned, VR and, and interact with the world in a virtual way that we couldn't. We're having prescriptive analytics taking over from predictive analytics. We're having robotic doing things that we never imagined. We are having our ability to use our brain to move robots. So if you bring all of these together, I think we are on the cusp of a whole set of new accelerating world that will have a massive effect on healthcare. I just wish I was 40 years younger and I was just at the beginning of this wave. But there are many generations of new entrepreneurs who will take advantage of it. Ali, this has been so, so rich, covering everything from doing what is right to preventive rather than reactive healthcare, democratizing creativity, quantum computing, and the future of tech in healthcare. And if you're interested in the future of well-being in business, then let me tell you about the Viva Technology event in Paris on the 15th to the 18th of June. It's called Viva Tech for short. Viva Tech is the world's rendezvous for startups and leaders to celebrate innovation. Health to Wealth is a partner through Accor, and we have a shortlist of startups who will pitch to a jury on June 15th for a winner to be crowned. The Health to Wealth category is how to help people take action for their well-being. Have a look on the Health to Wealth website for more information. And if you're going to the event, do let me know because I'm also going to be there. There's a contact form on that website so you can get in touch very easily. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Health to Wealth, a series created by Accor. Next time, you'll hear from Professor of Neuroscience Olaf Blanke on how technology can improve your experience of meditation. Please rate, review and follow Health to Wealth. You can find out more at healthtowealthbyaccor.com. 